0: Greetings to all of you that happen to be watching this video or listening to the iPod audio from this message. My name is David Thompson from the Fraser Valley in British Columbia. I have begun a series of messages on the seven churches mentioned in the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and chapter 3, and... This is the second church that I will be speaking on. The first one was the church of Ephesus. And so I just briefly want to mention to those of you that are new that I am here to seek to give this message out of the utterance of the Spirit of God. As Christ said, the words that I speak unto you are spirit and life. I am praying that what I share here will penetrate through to the very core of your being, that you will experience God touching your heart and giving you a revelation of the reality of who he is, of coming into the first saving knowledge, if you've never come into that saving knowledge, of Jesus Christ. Christ said in John 17, and this is life eternal that they might know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And for those that are believers around the world, that you may be enlarged to comprehend the greatness by the Spirit of God, of God's love, in its height and depth and breadth. your being enlarged by this message and through your relationship with the corporate body of Christ that you happen to be connected with. This message is to the body of Christ around the world and to every individual who in the foreknowledge of God has come across this message. It is a message that is for the end times to awaken us unto the fullness of our destiny as individuals and corporately, as his corporate bride that he seeks to have pure and spotless and ready for his coming. My prayer is that I would be hidden and that you would be more conscious of the reality of God than of the vessel that he is using. We are all frail and have different weaknesses and strengths, including myself. And so may you have the eyes of your heart open to see the reality of your relationship with God. I am going to begin by reading beginning in Revelations chapter 2, verses 8 to 11, which is on the message of of God to the church, Smyrna. And, And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works in tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. For those that have maybe not heard the other message to the first church, the church of Ephesus, I just briefly want to mention that I go into a lot more detail about the seven perfections of the Spirit of God that are mentioned in the book of Revelations, which are likened onto the colors in a rainbow. The seven colors of a rainbow making up the fullness of light in its utter purity and brightness. And so... God describes himself communicating with the churches and he describes himself in the three aspects of his governance of the ultimate aspects of existence which are beyond time and space, in time and space and filling all space. And we see this mentioned, for example, in Revelations chapter 1. And in Revelations chapter 1, we read in verse 4, Grace beyond you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come. And from the seven spirits which are before his throne. And this is what I spoke on in a lot of detail in the first message. The seven spirits are referring to the seven perfections of the spirit of God. Not to seven different entities or personages. There is only one God. There's not three gods. There's one God. There are many people that believe Christians believe in Three gods, that they're polytheistic, and this is the farthest from the truth. In fact, I can state that the belief that we have as Christians is the purest form of monotheism, and I can explain why it is. I am not here to go into detail on that. I do want to do, particularly this time when there's been accusations that Christians are polytheists and that they do not believe in one God, This has been on the news by those groups that are beheading Christians. I do want to address why that is the case in a special message in the very near future. So here we have the seven spirits of God mentioned. And then as we go to verse 5, it says, And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten from the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, One of the names for God in the Old Testament or the First Testament is Elohim, which means, basically it means this, the Almighty's One. One God, but it's mentioned in a plural way. The Almighty's One. El means almighty. And Elohim is plural. Elohim. In fact, in Genesis 1 it says, let us... This is God speaking. Let us make man in our image. It is plural. Now, I'm not here to get into a detailed message on this. But what I want to point out to those that are from a different background is that for God to fully govern, to be fully almighty, means that he must be an entity. He must be in personage. In conscious intelligence, beyond time and space, to rule beyond time and space. And if he could not rule beyond time and space in personage, he wouldn't be almighty, for he would be limited in his rule. And for God to be able to rule within the creation, that is, in the time and space realm, he must also be in personage, or what can be called conscious, intelligent entity, in that realm to rule within that realm if he could not rule within the time and space realm in by being in it and experiencing it he would not be ruling over it and in it and through it god in the realm that is beyond time and space is known in governance as the Father. Governance that sees the end from the beginning because he transcends time and space. In fact, the word Father has the understanding of experience through time, or you could say over time, and in this case it is actually beyond time, as well as over time. The Father also means originator, the originator of all things. That's the understanding of the word Father. And also, it has the understanding of relationship, of course, to what He has created. The Son is that aspect of the one true God, an entity and personage that governs within the creation realm, within the time and space realm. The word Son basically means expression, expression of the Source, the Source being the Father. In fact, Hebrews 1 3 plainly states that Jesus Christ is the full expression of the Father. And when Jesus Christ was in this world, he even said, That he that has seen me has seen the Father, in John 14. Then we have the aspect of God. As the Holy Spirit, which in this particular passage is describing that Holy Spirit of God in seven aspects of perfection likened unto the seven colors in the rainbow. And the Holy Spirit of God is God in conscious personage, in conscious entity of intelligence, filling all space and attached to every particle of existence that he has created. He is in omnipresence with total power and total omniscience, which is ultimate knowledge. He is able, being attached to every particle that he has existed, to raise the dead, to reverse anything back to the state it was, and also to create anything, and be in personage even in a vision or in a form everywhere at the same time and so as the father and as the son he is in personage in omnipresence as the holy spirit and there are seven aspects of perfection that are described in the book of revelation now they don't It does not point out in Revelation what these seven aspects of the perfection of the Spirit of God are. But as I have meditated on this, I believe God has given me the understanding of what they are. It's not a concrete dogmatism, but it is something that I believe is totally applicable. And I mention it in the context of these churches because I believe every one of these churches has one of those aspects of perfection addressed to it of the Spirit of God. For example, I want to point out in Revelation chapter 5 that it says in verse 6, Speaking of the Son, which is described in this way, And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne, and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as it had been slain. Having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, the seven aspects of the perfection of the Spirit of God, you could put it that way, sent forth into all the earth. There's another verse in the scripture, which I need to turn to, that says this, that the eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout all the earth, seeking for those whose heart is perfect towards him perfect in integrity and in trust towards him as it were. He seeks for those who in one as- in one of these seven aspects, is in conformity to who he is and delights in those that are entering into such an intimate relationship with him. In fact, these seven aspects of the perfection of the spirit of the one true God, are aspects that are reciprocal in relationship of love, of fellowship. I'm not here to get into an in-depth message on these seven aspects of the perfection of the Spirit of God. But the first one is the foundational one, and that is the spirit of the fear of the Lord. This is a healthy fear that is unto life. I could go into a long time because I'm writing an in-depth book on the fear of God as the root theme from which so many things spring forth. But in Isaiah 33, around verse 5 or 6, I believe it is, it is speaking of Jesus Christ, which is the full expression of God into creation, the one and only full expression of God into creation, for He alone is God. And it describes Him this way, and it says that the fear of the Lord is His treasure. And so one would ask themselves, how is it possible that God would need to fear God? No, it's not that simplistic what is the fear of god this passage that we're going to be talking about is on the on death and death is related to the other side of fear that destructive aspect of fear that is totally the opposite of the fear of god i'm not going to get into that right now but the fear of god is a choice It involves more than just intellectual ascent. It is a deep turning of the heart that involves choice to recognize the reality of who God is. God is the ultimate reality. In fact, his name means ultimate reality. Where do I get that from? Well, in both the old or the pre-Christ, and the after Christ scriptures of the Bible, he is called the I am that I am. In Hebrew, it is Ahia, Asher, Ahia. I am that I am is a way of describing the ultimate source of reality. The word Yahweh, or Yehovah, another name for God that is permeated throughout especially the pre-Christ scriptures has the clear understanding of the self-existent one. Now if we look up in the dictionary the meaning of the word reality, it basically means that which is unchangeable, that which cannot be moved, that which is everlasting, and that which is indestructible. Now I could. I have to be careful here. I can really get carried away with with talking and speaking on this. And I do want to get into the message. But here's what I want to say about this. That's what the dictionaries describe reality as. Do you know that the definition of the word truth, if you look at different dictionaries, means that which is real, that which is reality? And so here we have a definition of reality. So what quality could possibly be indestructible? There's only one quality, and it is a quality that is ultimately trustworthy, the ultimate source of trustworthiness, if you will. So what quality is that? It is a quality that is basically the highest purest form of love, and love, this highest form of love, can be defined this way. It always chooses, freely chooses of its own self-originating source, always freely chooses the highest lasting good over any more immediate gratification that would be less. In fact, it is innate in its being, so that it is like a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest word, thought, or deed that would be contrary to such love. Now we're talking about death in this message, and one thing I want to point out right now in relation to what I'm talking about is this. There is a scientific law that is called death. The second law of thermodynamics. There's the first law of thermodynamics and there's the second law of thermodynamics. The second law of thermodynamics basically is an observation of something that is observed throughout the whole universe, a scientific observation. And that is that anything that is left on its own will always go in the direction of greater and greater disorder, to total chaos, or if you will, destruction. So, anything that's left on its own goes in a direction that is corruptible, that has the element therefore of death in it, because death is the absence of life, of that which is constructive that is ever enlarging under greater constructivity to enlarge in greater fulfillment and meaning and purpose. So, there's there's the other law of thermodynamics. The first law of thermodynamics says that matter cannot be destroyed, it just changes different forms. In other words, it's basically saying this, that because we exist, something existed without a beginning. So you put those two laws together and you have an amazing contradiction. Because one law is indicating an infinite past First law of thermodynamics, and the other laws indicating that there is this natural principle that goes in the direction of disorder. Therefore, we should have been brought to total chaos in the infinite past, and yet here we are in a highly complex and designed universe where even the brain has hardly been fathomed by science. Need I go into what they've discovered within the cells, machines that are so complex that they're more complex than man today being able to create a spaceship that can travel to other planets and reproduce itself and spread throughout the universe. Read in Darwin's black box if you want to know more about that. In Darwin's black box. Now, I don't have to go into all the very solid scientific evidence in every field that is supported by highly qualified scientists that shows that evolution is merely a masterful deception of lies. and takes way more faith to believe in when you face the evidence. But that's not what I'm getting into here. I am wanting to describe... The awesomeness and the high the beauty and the glory and this 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 ultimate source of reality. That is why everything is here the way it is. It is because within God there is this quality called love that can contain unlimited life and power without being corrupted by it, or without dissipating it with corruption. The being of God has integrity. His love has integrity. It is a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest word, thought, or deed that is contrary to it. That is the holiness of God. It is the defensive aspect of the being of God. It is the foundation from which springs creativity that can ever enlarge into greater and greater realms of fulfillment, out of love, without corruption. If there was corruption, it could not be so. And this is well illustrated by something that is observed in all of nature, and that is a negative and a positive symbol. All living things, cells and everything in our bodies, all have negatives and positives that hold them together or cause them to function in certain ways. But there's an ultimate negative positive. And I have just described to you the ultimate negative, which is not really a negative. It's an ultimate positive, but it is the representation of the negative symbol. It is the foundation from which there is, in that negative symbol, it represents foundation and cutting off all that is contrary to love. And God's being... Condemn corruptibility, he would no longer be God. He would have allowed corruption within his being and then could not contain unlimited life and power in a direction that is ultimately good and always growing in goodness. And it is from this foundation that there can spring this creativity, which is represented in the plus symbol, because out of that foundation, and that forms the symbol of the cross. Did you know that the ancient letters going back to 2000 BC from which almost all languages come, I'm not sure about Chinese, but all the other ones, the last letter of the alphabet is the symbol of a cross, and that's how they wrote it way back then in 2000 BC. It is because God's being has this creativity This expression of love without corruption, that it could be so fully expressed that without violating the integrity of his love, that is his holiness, he could actually have within his being such an ultimate purity of love that he could take judgment upon himself and suffer more than you, a mere creature, and humble himself more than you, a mere creature. So that you, if you choose to repent, could be reconciled to God and receive assurance of forgiveness. And that reality was in the being of God, always was a reality. In fact, in Revelations chapter 18, it says concerning Jesus Christ, who is described as the Lamb of God, it says this. It says that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God that was slain. I don't need to turn to it. I know it's there. I've memorized the book of Revelation. It says that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God that was slain from the foundation of the world. In other words, he was slain before the foundations, the plans for the foundations of this world, for the the creation of this world were even laid. Because he was already there, he was before creation. And that was in his being, in the being of the one true God, a reality that he had the power to forgive sins and to assure forgiveness. And it was from the very time of Adam and Eve that this good news was preached. And it is this, that there is only one God and that he has provided a way of forgiveness that you can be assured of forgiveness and be reconciled to him. And if God could not assure to the creature forgiveness for those that have not, Directly gone against his presence but through temptation by the indirect realm of the physical, if he could not assure forgiveness to them that repent, that would mean that he could not, he had created something that had no purpose, no ultimate purpose, which would infer that he is imperfect. No, the highest form of monotheism is this understanding of the one true God that I am preaching. These other concepts. came out of Cain. Cain was offended at the holiness of God, at the consequences of God's judgment upon the earth because of man's rebellion. God had foreknown that this would all happen. He put the tree there in the first place because he knew it would happen. He had a plan through it all, and I'm not here to get into all that. But what is God's purpose? It is ultimately that we should be his corporate bride and know a deep, intimate fellowship with him. But There is consequences to rebellion against God. It is the second law of thermodynamics. When we choose to be independent of God, to go our own way or to be offended at the consequences of the integrity of his love and judgment, resulted in death on the earth and suffering and Cain was offended at that suffering. And so he began to be alienated in his heart towards God. He believed in God. He knew God was there. But now his heart was distant because he was offended at the holiness of God. And yet it is because of the holiness of God that requires judgment against the slightest that is contrary to his love. It is because of the holiness of God that there can be contained wholeness, which is that which is without corruption, And out of wholeness comes ultimate beauty and ultimate fulfillment. But when we see the consequences of going against the holiness of God, which is the second law of thermodynamics, that is death, that is this corruption, it is easy to see all the suffering around us and the suffering that we experience in our own personal lives and to become offended at God like Cain and lose sight of the goodness that is behind the holiness of God. So what happens then? We have a distorted, idolatrous concept of God that we form in our heart. And so Cain began to form an idolatrous, monotheistic concept of God that was not really monotheism because it was idolatrous, even though it was the belief in one God. He saw God as a tyrant that was holy and controlling and lost sight of the goodness behind the holiness of God. He lost sight of the fact that God had the power to forgive and to assure mercy if we would humble ourselves and not trust in our own sufficiency and independence before him. But if we have a wrong concept of God as someone that's demanding, then it's because there's a deception in our heart that is trusting in ourselves and that is a deception of self-worship even keeping the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments can become an idol. If we think that we can bring our performance before God and ignore the reality of His holiness and not humble ourselves and allow our heart to be broken before Him and to cry out from the depths of our heart for His mercy and forgiveness and deceive ourselves by saying, look at how good I am, I'm bringing all this before God. When in fact all we're doing is worshipping our own self-sufficiency. Whatever one trusts is where they're putting their worth and therefore where they're putting their worship. And so you're in a deceived state of religiosity that believes you're pleasing God when in fact you're filled with pride and you do not reveal in your heart the true love of God to others because of that. Well, I've gone into a lot in sharing that. But now I want to get on with ministering to the body of Christ. This part of the message has been more for those that may not know a lot of these things. But I want to go back to the book of Revelation here and I want to speak on the church of Smyrna. I have no idea what God wants to say or how this is all going to come out. So, returning back, I will say just before I do that, though a little bit more about the seven perfections of the Spirit of God. Because I describe Jesus Christ that is as a, he's described as a Lamb with seven eyes, which are seven horns and seven eyes. The horns represent authority. His eyes go forth with authority, but also seeing and knowing all things and allowing his authority to be executed according to the purpose of conformity to these seven aspects of the perfection of the Spirit of God. The first one I mentioned is the Spirit of the Fear of God. That is where we choose to recognize God in these two aspects, the ultimate negative and the ultimate positive. We recognize the integrity of his love that requires judgment. We recognize the greatness of his mercy and we turn with all our heart. And when we do that, It can be illustrated this way. When electrons spin around the nucleus of an atom, they form a hard shell as they spin at high speeds around the nucleus of an atom. What breaks the hard shell? It is the negative and the positive cause of that shell to be broken and there's the flow of electricity or life. This is illustrated of our hearts. We are in a state cut off from God, where there's corruption in us, where there's death in us, and our heart is like a hard shell. And that shell needs to be broken like a seed. The outward cell of that seed needs to be broken. How does that outward shell of the seed be broken? By being exposed to the light of the sun, by being exposed to the elements of the earth and the water, The earth represents circumstances of pressure. The water represents this presence of God trying to melt that hardness. The sun represents the truth. And then, if the seed responds to the truth, to the light, to those elements, it will bring forth new life. Also, when we see and choose to recognize the holiness of God, and have a deep turning in our heart to Him, and recognize that out of that, there's such great mercy that God is showing to us, that He could so humble Himself, that He's so great, that He's so almighty, that He could actually condescend and take judgment upon Himself for us. Our heart breaks at any pride, And we experience the flow of the light of his spirit coming to abide and dwell within our being. Because Christ poured out of his love, his blood, to cleanse you and make you white as snow from all your sins and to forgive you the moment you cry out and ask for it. The fear of God is the choice to recognize what is ultimately trustworthy, what is ultimately real, which is what I am describing. There is nothing more ultimately trustworthy than what I am describing. This ultimate negative and positive, as it were, For lack which is God's love represented in holiness, out of which springs mercy and forgiveness and the provision of destiny forever and ever in a corporate bride with him of his people from every diverse background. Out of the fear of God springs the... Now, in the triunity of God, the one true God, there is this reciprocative relationship where, like I said, the Messiah treasures the fear of God because it is, it is the secret of oneness within even the triunity of the one true God. And so the Son beholds in his being the beauty of the holiness of God and the brightness of his glory and of his love that is so pure and radiating. And he's just filled with thankfulness and joy and praise. And he wants to show love back to the Father from the time and space realm, as it were. And he says to the Father... Father, I love you so much. I want to go and condescend and suffer more than the mere creature, and humble myself more than mere man so that I can bring to you a corporate bride that you can be enlarged in love with. And the father says to the son, I see such glory and beauty in you, my son, that as painful as it is for me to let you go, I want my love to be enlarged into a greater realm of love by letting you experience the inheritance of a corporate bride that you can be fulfilled in even more so unto me. And so there's this reciprocative relationship. And so all I will describe about the other aspects of the um, seven perfections of the Spirit of God is that the one... Other one, The next one is holiness. I've described the holiness of God. It is the integrity of his love. So I won't go into that. Out of which springs the mercy of God, which also includes the grace of God. That is unmerited favor. And so I describe that as the spirit of grace. That is the other perfection of the spirit of God. And so out of this springs the comprehension in our being of the love of God. And also in the triunity of the one true God, there is an ever enlarging comprehension of its love that is reciprocated. And so that is another perfection of the Spirit of God. It's the Spirit of love. And then out of that love comes faith. The Bible says that faith works by love. How is that? Because when you really see the love of God, that is this mercy. In which you see the, from which you comprehend the love of God, you are seeing what is ultimately trustworthy, and therefore your being reaches out in trust, in total trust. You are persuaded through every trial, through every circumstances, in who God is, that He loves you, that He has your highest good in mind, and you are conscious that you are complete in Him, that you're not complete in the temporal vanities of this world. And so that is the spirit of faith, is that trust. And I want to talk about that in relation to conquering death, which is what this passage is on in the church of Smyrna. And Then out of that, there is also the experience of oneness with God, a oneness of heart and of mind and with one another that comes out of this reciprocative relationship And that is another aspect of the spirit of perfection, which I mentioned in relation to the Church of Ephesus and how they lost that awareness of oneness with God. And then lastly, there's the spirit of wisdom, the seventh spirit, which involves right rulership and authority, knowing how to use power and authority in a way that is constructive on a greater purpose and meaning in life. The spirit of wisdom, which is related to the church of Thyatira in the coming messages. Now, going to the church of Smyrna, what I want to share here is this. First of all, I'm just trusting the Spirit of God to speak. And so I will begin by going to the first verse there in verse 8, where it says, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. But of course, this is speaking of Jesus Christ who rose from the dead. He is called the first and the last. Jesus Christ is called the first because he is described as the creator of all things in Colossians. I could turn to Colossians, and I know this is a chronological Bible I have, sir, here, so I have to go with the other Bible here to find that, which is on my iPod. And, um,. It's it's really not even necessary for me probably to turn to Colossians, but I believe it's Colossians, probably, could be chapter one, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not going to uh, bother trying to find verses that I didn't plan to speak on. But it says that concern, concerning him... This is describing Jesus Christ here. It says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. Jesus Christ is here called the first because he is before all things and the creator of all things as described in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. And he is described as the last because his ultimate purpose is a corporate bride. He is the last in the sense that God's purpose is ultimately in Jesus Christ. It describes it this way, for example, in Revelations chapter four, it says this, in verse 11, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. So ultimately, all things end up in their ultimate purpose, being consummated in the Creator. In this way, it is described in Jesus Christ. And I could go into a lot more, such as, I believe, 1 Corinthians 15, on this, the last part. And also, there are other verses, such as Ephesians, which I will go probably uh, to, and again, I'm going to have to use this this time because I don't have the right Bible in front of me. Ephesians chapter 5, and if you go to Ephesians 5, we read the following, I'll just kind of click halfway in there, and it says this um, concerning Jesus Christ, it describes the bride. I think it's Ephesians chapter four. I want maybe even better. Oops, Ephesians four. And again, I'll just go towards the end and see if it's there. Um, I I have it memorized. It says that Jesus Christ is the head of the body, and it describes him as the body being us, the corporate bride. This is God's. It is that he comes down and can fully inhabit his corporate body, his bride. It's also described as inhabiting a house that he is building. Living stones. It says in Peter that we are being built together as living stones for inhabitation of God through the Spirit. It also says in Ephesians that we are to, we comprehend with all saints the height and the breadth and the depth of the love of God that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. And then it describes that he is the head of the body, the fullness of him that fills all in all, which is also mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15 towards the end. And so Jesus Christ is saying here to the church of Smyrna in that sense That he is the first and the last. That ultimate purpose, that ultimate destiny and meaning is found in him. He is the highest good. And love is always choosing the highest good onto the highest good who is God. So we go on in this passage of Revelations chapter 2. It says that he was dead and is alive. Jesus Christ is described as the lamb that was slain even before the world was created. And it describes him here in Revelations chapter 5. Again, just before verse, in that same verse it says, And I beheld and low in the midst, this is 5 verse 6, In the midst of the throne of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as it had been slain. So there was a lamb representing Jesus Christ because all the sacrifices that were made before he came were a representation of God's ultimate sacrifice, and I don't have time to go into that here. Jesus Christ was called by John the Baptist, the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, because there was a recognition that animals did not represent the soul and body and therefore could not cleanse the soul of the body, nor could forgive sin. In fact, there's another verse in the Psalms, or is it Isaiah, that says that concerning the Jesus Christ, it says that He it says, Shall I give my the fruit of my womb as a living sacrifice to God in order to get rid of my sins? Basically that's what it's saying. And it says no. There's nothing that can possibly do it. The only possibility of having sin nullified is a perfect atoning sacrifice of a human being that resists all temptation and lives a perfect life. And that could only be found in God. And only Christ lived that perfect life. As it says in the scripture, he was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. So that he, as it were, took the first man, Adam, that was disobedient and through his obedience or his union with the Father, carried, as it were, that first man, Adam, and nailed him to death onto the, on the cross so that we could be implanted into him, the second Adam that rose from the dead. In this passage here, it says in verse 9 concerning the church of Smyrna. And I want to mention here that the word Smyrna means myrrh. This was a special um, gooey resin where you would cut certain trees, the bark of certain trees, it would come out as pitch that gave off a beautiful incense uh, that made a beautiful fragrance. It was used as incense. It was used to flavor things and it was used to heal wounds inside the mouth and on skin and all of that. That is what the word Smyrna means concerning this church here Smyrna. And Smyrna certainly experienced the pain of suffering. But out of that pain came forth a fragrance. It was pleasing and acceptable unto God. And so he says here in verse 9, And I know thy works and tribulation. You see, they experience tribulation in all of their good works. And poverty. They experience material poverty. But thou art rich. They also experience poverty in spirit. It says in the word of God, Blessed are the poor, not physically poor, but poor in spirit. There's a scripture that says, I dwell in the high and holy place, this is God speaking, with him that is of a broken and a contrite heart. What makes us poor in spirit is what brings God to dwell close to us. Because when we are poor in spirit, we are entering in to the secret of the fear of God to abiding in an intimate relationship with God out of the great reverence and awe of who he is that brings us to the place where the hardness in our heart is shattered so that he can come nigh into our heart. This is intimacy. This is not some mindset that brings bondage, it's the opposite. It is what brings true liberty. Because when that hardness and shell in our heart is broken, it opens the eyes of our heart to see God for who he truly is. This was Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter two, that the eyes of our heart would be open, that we would know the exceeding greatness, the exceeding riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. I wish I had my other Bible here. It's Ephesians chapter 2. I'll just go there. I'm in Ephesians 4 right now. And Ephesians chapter 2. I don't know, around verse 12, I think. Hard to find sometimes these things. I think it's just better for me to just uh, go by what I know. and It's um, somewhere there. Uh, Paul's prayer was that the eyes of our heart would be opened, that we'd know the exceeding riches of God's of our inheritance in the saints, and the exceeding greatness and the and the and the and the, and the greatness of the hope that we have, and also the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe. In fact, I do know I have that scripture written down here because it has to do with this theme that we're talking on which is death. It's Ephesians 1 19 So if we go to Ephesians chapter 1 here, I had Ephesians 2 it's actually Ephesians 1 whoops, I got the wrong book. Ephesians Chapter 1, and we can go a few verses earlier around 16, and we read this. This is Paul's prayer. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling, and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And here's the part. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who are to believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his right, own right hand in the heavenly places. God wants us to know the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe. And the way we enter into this is by entering in to that place where we experience, as it were, the bark of our heart being sliced so that the perfume can come out before God. Poverty of spirit, but also physical poverty, I am sure is what this, and they had tribulations, but all of these things corner us into a closer relationship with God. He goes on to say here about the Church of Smyrna, and I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews that are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. So there are people that can say that they are the people of God but have lost out of their relationship with God over time. This so easily happens. I can't go into this in detail. I went into it quite a bit on the message to the first church. There's been powerful, genuine Outpourings of the Spirit of God, of awakening, of a revival in church history, such as the Welsh Revival, such as Azusa Street. Well, what happens is eventually division comes in because someone wants a position or someone wants something other than a relationship with God. When that happens by the second or third generation, you have a hierarchy that forms People in the first generation may have had a true revelation of the truth where it wasn't just intellectual. But eventually that truth becomes enshrined and becomes, as it were, an idol that a hierarchy forms around. It becomes denominational and they focus on that one truth and it becomes so important to them that they are willing to not receive others. Christ said that we were to receive one another as he received us. We were received as sinners. And to have a denominational mindset or a divisive mindset because you have a truth that you believe others don't see, or whatever it is, is not humility. When Abraham went through great trials, his faith was tested to the point that God said that he wanted him to kill his son on Mount Moriah. And as soon as Abraham is about to raise that knife and kill his son, God stops him. And the angel cries out of heaven and says, Abraham, do not lay your hand on the son. Now, what does he say? The first thing the angel says to Abraham is, now I know that you fear me. Now I know that you recognize me for who I really am that you know such a belief and a persuasion in my being, that you are willing to lay even the most precious things down before me so that your identity is fully in me and not in the temporal things that I've created. So that means I can lead your life onto life and that you can be pleasing unto me and be a great blessing to me. And so Abraham has been and is. The same happens in the church. By the second or third generation, the blessings that God have given become too much for many people, and they get their eyes on the blessings rather than the giver of the blessings, and the result is that they allow the children to run the church, and they're more interested in pleasing the children than God. And so then a hierarchy forms, and then God is greatly limited in his presence and his glory within a denominational mindset that comes out of hardness of heart due to pride. I can't get into that. And so we have often those who were once the source of true revival and generations later being the persecutors of the new move of God. So a shell is formed and out of that shell comes a greater movement. And it is illustrated this way, it is like a plant growing. As the plant grows, there is a shuck that forms when corn is growing, which represents the structures of man that have formed. But as the plant continues to grow, out of that comes another folding away of the shuck. Till eventually the corn is glowing in the sun and its ultimate purpose is fulfilled. And God's ultimate purpose is this corporate bride that he wants to bring forth that will be pure and spotless and without blemish. And he's calling his people to enter into these seven perfections of the Spirit of God so that he can have a corporate bride that is without spot and without wrinkle. Now the next verse commands the church of Samaria and gives them a command because they're facing great tribulation. You see, Samaria was a city where Tiberius was to be worshipped as a god. And the Christians, obviously, were not going to worship Tiberius as a god. It was the cult of emperor worship. And so he says this, Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried. And ye shall have tribulation ten days be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown, a radiating emanation, an aura of life that is so great that it will shine bright as the brightest suns for eternity. And as it shines, it will bring life to all around in heaven where there is a realm of utter perfection and beauty that is all in harmonious love, worshiping God and loving one another. Go to my site at ultimatemeaning.com or love realize.com, and look at the life after death videos of people that have visited heaven, that have died in their body and been revived, and what they describe is, in, is just beyond comprehension. In fact, it says, I has not seen, neither has he heard, the things that God has prepared for them that love him. But the command is this, that when we face death, we are commanded to not fear. When we face death, that doesn't necessarily mean at the time that it's going to be martyrdom. Death is a principle. It is a principle of corruption. It is a consciousness that is out of fear out of a negative fear. Fear is basically the consciousness of loss. It is like this. It is like a black hole in outer space. If we are conscious of losing something in relation to ourselves, that is of this world, including our own life, whether it be our reputation, or whether it be our physical body, or whether it be situation where we don't know how we're going to have any money left, or whatever it is, or we're going to lose someone that's really precious to us. Whatever it is, we are commanded to not fear it. It says in Joshua, as they're about to conquer the promised land, be strong and very courageous, and it repeats it over again, be strong and very courageous. We know what happened when they entered the promised land the first time. The first, the ten spies came back and eight gave a bad report. And two, Joshua and Caleb gave a good report. They did not fear the giants. that were way bigger than them. They were probably 12 feet. There were many in that time period of giants that were that large. But they didn't fear them, Joshua and Caleb. And it says concerning Joshua and Caleb in describing their spirit, which is basically their soul and their spirit, it says this: that they had another spirit; that their soul was different than the others. Why was that the case? If you read the life of Joshua, you find he had a length of prayer. He didn't. He stayed all night. It says in the temple on his face before God. He always wanted to be with Moses, seeking God, being in the presence of God. That brought him to a place where he knew the breaking of all that hardness in his being. And he knew the imbuing of the light of the love of God changing his being and forming his soul into a conformity to the being of God. Paul talks about it like this. His earnest desire and prayer in Ephesians is this. He says, my prayer is that you might be strengthened with might in the inner man, that Christ might dwell in your hearts by faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. And it goes on. You see, when you are strengthened with might in your inner being, it is because you are learning an abiding relationship with God that conforms your soul into this love that is without consciousness of loss, which is a negative fear in relation to oneself instead of knowing your completeness in God. It's described this way in 1 John. It says, perfect love casts out fear. That's 1 John chapter 4. Perfect love casts out fear. Maybe I can go to 1 John chapter 4 and Although I don't really need to say more than that, but First John chapter four, I believe it is. I'll guess it to be around verse twelve. To see what we got there, and it says this in verse seventeen and eighteen: Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear has torment or has uptightness. He that fears is not made perfect in love. The solution to not fearing... To obeying the commandment to not fear, in other words, to be strong and courageous, involves an abiding relationship with God that causes our soul and spirit to be transformed so that God can say, like he said of Joshua and Caleb, that they have another soul, another spirit. It is a spirit and soul that is fearless, that is courageous because it is in conformity in its identity to God rather than the things of this world. Yes, they would have tribulation 10 days. But if they were to be faithful and not compromise and say, yeah, we want you to worship the emperor. If you just do this, just bow down and worship the emperor and everything will be fine. No. No. They were faithful unto death. As it says concerning Christ, when he went to the cross, it says this, who oh, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. And when we see the joy of our relationship that is set before us with God, we can go through all things. If we are in a binding, holy, intimate relationship with God, if we have sin in our lives and we are refusing to let go of the things of this world, that's another story. Then our heart is like a black hole in outer space with an emptiness in us that is sucking all things in around us in a destructive way because we are making choices out of motives that are self-seeking and temporal rather than out of a relationship with God. That is the secret We are commanded to be strong and courageous. It still involves an initiation on our part to choose to be strong and courageous in the face of every death experience in our lives or every trial in our lives including martyrdom itself. I think it's a lot easier maybe to you know when you think of it have your head cut off and experience a few seconds of pain than to have Months and months of dying of cancer. No, that doesn't mean we want want those things or we should choose or desire those things. We should in all things choose to have the delivering power of God over death. But if God allows us to experience death, even the 12 disciples were martyred except for if, even the Apostle John was martyred, yes, in the end. They all experienced martyrdom. Christ was martyred. But here's the secret that I want to bring out about conquering death, because this theme is about conquering death. The church of Smyrna. The secret of conquering death is faith. This is the perfection of the spirit of faith that I am talking about. And I want to describe this now in relation to Christ on the cross, when he conquered death on the cross. When Christ conquered death on the cross, people often are misled to believe that when he was forsaken of God, that his union with God was cut off. That is false. He is the one true God. There is no way the one true God can be, have his union with God broken. Did he experience being the, the, the judgment of God the, in the sense of God forsaking him with judgment? Yes. But he never lost faith in his union with the Father through that. Even when he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He still had faith in God. There are many trials that people go through where they say, why, why, why? But it doesn't mean that their why is. In bitterness... No, Christ said, into thy hands I commend my spirit. He was in in a state of total selfless trust in the Father through it all, even though it crossed the natural understanding of things and so on, so that you would, just because of the burden of it all, want to get released by saying, why, why, why? But your trust is still in God. The, The understanding of faith is this. It is defined in the scripture. The, the Hebrew and the Greek word. The, the Hebrew. The Greek word is pistis. Which means persuasion. It is persuasion in who God is. It is a moral persuasion. That is immovable. No matter what the circumstances. It is immovable in it's identity. And reciprocative relationship. With God. Faith in the love of God in your completeness and identity, being only in God, gives you the power to overcome all things, including death itself. And it is that moral persuasion that allows your soul and spirit, and I'm going to describe it this way, your soul and spirit are like a fist before you receive Christ. They're in a state of deceptive self-worship where your spirit, which is the aspect of capacity to worship, is worshiping your soul, which is the consciousness of who you are. And so you are in a state of pride, of self-worship, where your spirit is worshiping your soul. It is a state like a fist. But then you see who God is. You open up like that seed in the ground to the light of the truth. And the presence of God's Spirit through the circumstances that God's allowed to pour you to the truth. And you break at the revelation of the love of God. And your spirit opens up to the revelation of his love. And it becomes like a hand which represents a state of selfless trust. That state of selfless trust is what brings the Spirit of God is another hand to dwell with your soul and your spirit. Now you have a hand that can't close because the other hand is dwelling with it, representing the Spirit of God. So now you are in a state of a new nature, which is the new divine nature that is in you because you have opened up to the light of who God is and received the light of his presence into your inner being. And you have a new divine nature. And it is described in 1 John. It says, in 1 John, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. It says, and whatsoever is born of God, overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. So it is born of God, it is brought forth in you of God. How? By the indwelling of the Spirit of God. It is the Spirit of faith. It is... This is the victory that overcomes the world. It is this faith in who God is that is a persuasion in who he is that is immovable, that overcomes all things. The Hebrew word for belief and faith, the word belief, for example, in Genesis when it says Abraham believed God and it was counted on him for righteousness, that Hebrew word If you look it up in the vines, you'll find out that it says that it has the understanding of such a persuasion in who God is, not in what God does, but in who he is and His being, that it is likened onto a root where the top is all torn off because of all the storms and trials of life, but the root cannot be moved. It's still there. It is impossible to move it. Its identity is solid. That is what faith is. It is faith in who God is through every trial. And so we may even feel like God's presence is gone like with Christ, the presence of God was gone. He couldn't feel God's presence. He was just experiencing a forsaking, a terrible judgment upon him, taking upon the sins of all creation, absorbing it upon himself. It outpoured love in his blood for you and me. And you know what? His soul was in the state of selfless trust. It was immovable in oneness with the Father. So he was totally pure in his soul and spirit. There was no corruption in his soul and spirit. That is why it says in Romans 1 verse 4, That Jesus Christ rose from the dead by the Spirit of holiness. His spirit, his soul was totally holy, totally pure, totally in conformity and oneness with the Father. He never ended up in a state of not trusting God and shaking his fist at God through the trials. No, he stayed in a state of moral persuasion and overcame all things and rose from the dead by the spirit of holiness that was in him and was proven and verified and substantiated by what he went through in the cross. And in the resurrection, it was verified. So we can experience inheriting a bright aura of light around our head that is brighter than the sun, a crown of life that emanates for eternity. If we choose to trust in who God is, the perfection of the spirit of faith, he that hath an ear, it says in verse 11, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be heard of the second death. And I want to parallel this and make it applicable to our present hour and time, to the body of Christ. In the book of Revelations, We have some verses about overcoming death in the last days. For example, it says in Revelations 20, And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus, and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither received his mark in their foreheads upon their foreheads or in their hands and they lived and reigned with Christ 8,000 years. Remember the emperor worship to the church of Smyrna? Their whole issue there was that they wanted, they had to bow down and worship the emperor and they refused to do it. Therefore, they were thrown probably to the lions. It's going to happen again. People that refuse to acknowledge the Antichrist and to receive his mark will not be able to buy or sell. And many of them will be beheaded, as described in this verse. But it goes on to say in verse 5 But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. And it says this in verse 6, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection, for in such the second death hath no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. Blessed and holy is he that has part in the first resurrection, for in such the second death hath no power. The reason is because they are fearless. The reason is because they have overcome all things, which is described in Revelations chapter 21, verse 6 and 8. It mentions the secret to overcoming all things. Revelations 21 and 8. And my I'm going to grab my other Bible here. Revelations chapter 21. I'm tired using that iPhone always. And it says this. It says in verse 6. And he said unto me, it is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is the thirst of the fountain of life freely. The secret is, do we have a thirst for God? You know what quenches our thirst for God? It is loving the things of this temporal realm. Does that mean that we can't enjoy it? We have a right relationship with God. We look at those things as gifts, and they do not become idols to us, or things that become motivating factors in our lives. But what quenches our thirst for God is when those things become priorities that take place of the kingdom of God, so that we're not seeking the kingdom of God first. And so the next verse says, He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be as God, and he shall be my son. The secret to overcoming all things is to not allow the loves of the world to quench our love relationship with God. And that secret is more amplified in the next verse. It says, But the fearful and the unbelieving and the abominable, and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire. The lake which burneth the fire and brimstone, which is the second death. The first thing that is mentioned is the fearful. We're fearful for our self-life because we are not learning the secret of yielding the life that God has given us back to him as a love offering, as a thank offering each day of our lives and a life of prayer and of abiding in his word. And making that a priority over money and all the loves of this world. Yes, there is coming a time in the near future where the choice is either the world and all of its pleasures or God. And if you receive the mark of the beast, it says that you will be in eternal torment forever. Because you will be cut off from the very source of love who is God because you are rejecting the very source of love who is God for the loves of temporal things that manipulate and control your life through the powers of darkness. Because they have become the thing that is in your heart instead of God. There's another verse and it says this. For as much then as children are partakers of flesh and blood, Christ also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that have the power of, the, of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. It is the fear of death, it is the fear of loss to self, including physical death itself, but all other forms of death which are simply the understanding of death. That second law of thermodynamics of independence from God of allowing our life to be motivated by things that take us in a direction of independence from God, who through fear of death were all their lifetimes subject to bondage, and verily he took not up. And that's, that's that verse. I want to share another wonderful verse in closing related to this. And it's a 2 Corinthians 2 14 to 16. Now thanks be unto God, which always causes us to triumph in Christ and maketh manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved and in them that perish. To the one, the savior of death unto death. Those that are in rebellion against God, they can't stand the presence of God. Those that are given over to devil worship and the occult and idolatrous religions. To the one we are a savior of death unto death and to the other a savior of life unto life. Who is sufficient for these things? Thanks be unto God that causes us to triumph in all things. Brother, sister, you can triumph in all things. You can know that you can do all things through Christ that strengthens you. You can know the courage and authority over you, over every threat of death to self. So that it doesn't matter what experiences of death to yourself life you experience. You know on the other end there will be God's creative working that will bring something even better out of it. Every trial produces a closer relationship with God. Yes, God wants us to know the exceeding greatness of his power to us where to believe. It is this faith. In who God is that releases his power, the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe to the point that it's the same power that raised Christ from the dead that we can experience working in our lives. Paul the Apostle said that we even despair of life itself because we are going through such great trials. But its purpose was to bring us to the place. And he said it this way. He said that we might not trust in ourselves, but in God that raises the dead. He said it this way in another verse, Paul. He said, always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So then death worketh in us, but life in you. Whenever we experience being put in a trial for the sake of the truth and for the sake of reaching others for Christ, it is bringing life in others. We having the same spirit of faith according as it is written, I believe, therefore have I spoken. We also believe and therefore speak knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise us up also by Jesus and shall present us with you. Well, I could go on sharing about the church of Smyrna. And so we've seen that Smyrna means this beautiful incense that comes out of trials, that is a fragrance unto God and is a fragrance unto one another, even as the verse that I just recently read. Thank you for listening to this message. It is a message for the last days that we might walk in his authority because we know a persuasion, a relationship with him. You see, our faith is built through prayer. It says, building up yourselves in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost. Let us be those that learn to pray in the Spirit of God, to have a life of prayer where we learn to enter in to pray and allowing the Spirit of God to pray through us, that our faith might be built up, that our soul might be conformed into a state of faith that is complete, that is full, that casts out all fear because it allows a total consciousness of love in us, in our relationship with God, that swallows up fear. God bless you all. Thank you for listening. I just decided that I want to sing a song on this topic, which is a favorite song of mine. It's the words that are significant in the song. It comes, I believe, from the underground church in China that is greatly persecuted. It could be that the source is somewhere else. Before that, I don't know for sure. I want to sing this song in closing this message. And may it minister to you. And maybe some of you in the body of Christ can pick up this song because I bet you there's not a single church in the world that has this song, especially in North America. And so I want to sing this to you in closing <clears throat> Death cannot hope the resurrection life, the life of God eternal manifest. Tis uncreated, indestructible. Tis Christ himself unconquerable expressed. Death cannot hold the resurrection life. Though all its force against it may combine, death only gives it opportunity to show the boundless power of life divine. Oh, death cannot hold. The resurrection life, the more entered, the more it multiplies. All kinds of suffering only help it grow, and fruits of life abundant realize. Death cannot hold the resurrection life. Through every block and barrier it breaks. Conquering the power of the darkness and of hell, it swallows death. And victory partakes, death cannot hold. The resurrection life, all of God's fullness, it will manifest God's righteousness and Holiness it yields, His glorious image by it is expressed. Oh, may I know this resurrection lie in every kind of Death, its power, poor in my experience, ever realized. This life is not, but Christ, my living Lord. Thank you, and God bless you all.